to our third episode of CaseCast. We'll be sticking to the same topic of acute GI bleeds and severe hemoptysis. However, this time we'll be having a different resident and attending duo who will give us their very own perspective on this topic. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, uh, my name is Walid Mansour. I'm a PGY3 at St. Mary Mercy Hospital. Uh, we have Dr. Shabala. Um, he graduated from Henry Ford Hospital Residency and he's currently one of our physicians at St. Mary Mercy Hospital. Uh, today we're going to talk about how to manage uh, a GI bleed um, that's likely to be a variceal origin. Uh, how are you doing, Dr. Bal? Good. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. appreciate you having me coming. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Bala, uh if a patient comes to you, uh, let's say a cirrhotic patient, um, unstable, vomiting blood, um, how would you, you know, could you discuss like a case that you've been through or something, uh, like a case that you've been through that will kind of discuss kind of how to manage an uh, unstable GI bleeder? Yes. So um, I, th I think uh, some of the most dramatic and frightening cases we see are the patient who has a massive upper GI bleed. We had a case last week where um, a patient was put into a kind of a low intensity room and um, the patient came in with the coughing up blood, but when we came into the room, he was sweaty and pale, and he had just vomited, and there was blood and clots kind of staining his shirt and on his shoes and on the floor, and uh, that can be sort of frightening and overwhelming. So it's nice to have a, a feel for what you do next. Yeah, so, so what's the, the first thing that comes to your mind when somebody vomiting blood, I'm, I'm assuming it would probably be the airway. And controlling the airway so well the, the first consideration is why did I do a different residency <laughs> but um, I, I think this this really gets your attention and um, it really is comes down to the ABC's so um, so the first thing that happens is all the nurses are in the room and they sort of do stuff without you telling them to so we always talk about having them put the patient on a monitor in the IV but you know what they're already doing that stuff mm -hmm. so you have a minute to kind of take three or four steps away from the patient and think because the patient's getting swarmed on and you talking and pointing isn't going to help because the nurses know what to do. But um, you just kind of get things rolling. So for this guy, he had a couple IVs started and he had some oxygen put on his nose, but he was sort of confused and um, then in instantly you start to think, well, does this guy need to be intubated right now? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they're all so... Um, marginal. You don't want to do a crash intubation. So for this guy, we just decided to try to give him some fluid. His pressure was 90. Give him a little fluid. He perked up a little bit, and we had some more time to think about it. So um, the other issue is um, if a guy's covered with blood, do you really need to put an NG tube into his stomach to establish that he has an upper GI bleed? Well, uh, the answer is, of course, no. Um, and how do you manage the, the nursing staff who feels uncomfortable putting in an NG tube because maybe they'll injure one of the varices and make him worse. So I think the, there isn't too much data to support NG tubes injuring and worsening variceal bleeding. So it just sort of has to be done. Um, now, I mean, does it really have to be done? Because again, you know the patient's bleeding, 
but for these dramatic bleeds, most of these patients get an NG tube, so you can sort of gauge how heavy the bleeding is. But I mean, I sort of go back and forth on that because once the guy's intubated, I mean, there's a lot of traffic in the oropharynx from the NG tube, so maybe you take it out before you intubate the patient. But you can reassure the nursing staff that they're not going to make this patient worse. Okay. Um, so um, I think, though, once you make the decision to intubate these people, you should be you really have to be cautious and sort of have a plan. I'm stealing from the MCRIT guy. He had a nice talk about the, the steps that you should take to carefully um, go through and get these patients intubated. So his uh, um, perspective was empty their stomachs first because they're, they're at high risk for aspiration. So what's the argument for not putting an NG tube in there and draining his stomach before you start to lay him down? I, I think that makes good sense. And uh, the other question is, how do you, what position should the patient be in for intubation? Is this someone that you want to lay down flat on their back? Um, that obviously will make them more at risk for aspiration. So w why not consider uh, intubating these patients while they're in semi-followers position at 45 degrees? It's a little weird because you have to lower the cart and uh, the whole mechanics of standing at the patient's side with a glide scope or trying to use a laryngoscope because you're not at the head of the bed, you're at the side of the bed. But that, that is also consideration. Now you could always um, try to lay the patient down slowly and see how he does. Um, so there's really different ways to play it. Additionally, be careful because these patients will vomit, so you should consider wearing protective, uh, be sure that you have a mask on with a, with a mask shield. And um, we always talk about the window of time you have to intubate these um, patients because they, they tend not to be oxygenating well, so you want to get them on a 100% non-rebreather, and you only really have one shot, and you may only have one shot at these patients, so you should get all your stuff lined up and be sure that you have all your equipment. So um, the guy's uh, doing okay. You don't probably, does, does BiPAP make sense for someone like this? Maybe not. Will BiPAP inflate this guy's stomach? So hopefully he's still oxygenating on a non-rebreather. And then um, you can get all your equipment, which would be probably a glide scope, uh, have the bougie at your side. And for us, when you have a failed intubation, what is the rescue uh, technique we use? We don't use the LMA too much here, but um, that's an option. Uh, mostly we're seeing the King airway used. So you should get that guy out and have him right at the bedside, get it lubed up. How many cc's of air does it take to fill a King airway? It's like 80 or 90 or 100. So if you have a 10 cc syringe there, it's not going to be enough to fill the thing up. So you'll be frantically trying to pump air into your King airway and looking like an idiot. So have a 60cc lure lock syringe there. Have all your stuff laid out so you can get this patient uh, intubated on the first attempt. Probably you should have the most qualified person trying to get this airway and even consider calling anesthesia to be at your side for this. And the meds, be cautious what meds you use for these patients. Um, you probably should use cardiac stable meds like ketamine. Maybe you should avoid propofol. Atomidate also probably makes sense for this patient. Um, and um, do any of these medications, do, do the paralytic agents cause trouble with esophageal sphincter tone? Should we not use sucks and rock because of the issues about esophageal sphincter tone? Um, I think in general these meds don't cause trouble there and you shouldn't feel, you shouldn't feel nervous about that. Um, 
The uh, other issue, I think, is what if you have a failed intubation? Um, the, have, you, have you ever seen someone who has a failed intubation, the mask goes right on the face, and who has the, has the nerve and calm to just bag the patient 10 times per hour? It's always 50 times per hour, and I, 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 don't, I don't know how to manage it. They talk about trying to talk like five Mississippi between each ventilation. Man, that's rough. That's rough. But I, I think you should concentrate on that, because if you overinflate the stomach, they're going to puke, and it's a disaster. Definitely. Um, what about, why not uh, try to intubate the patient in the Trendelenburg position? Why not? Because that way, if they do vomit and, uh, and then they have um, emesis in their oropharynx, at least it will slide out. Um, it'll go south. It won't go north. Um, I, uh, but I think I would prefer to avoid the aspiration in the first place rather than plan for it in that way. Um, the other issue is if the patient vomits, it's, it's a tsunami of blood. It's not just a little goo in the back of the throat. And if you have your one little yanker suction, that's not going to be enough. Um, so you should consider having two uh, yanker suctions. Uh, the MCRIT guy talks about having the meconium aspirator hooked up directly to the NG tube, or probably mm -hmm. to the endotracheal tube, which is an interesting idea to hook suction right up to the endotracheal tube so you have a giant bore tube in the oropharynx to start sucking blood. Wow. I've never seen that used, but I think that's a, that's a great idea. Um, so hopefully you get the patient uh, oxygenated, and they're 100% once you put them down with drugs, and um, you get a good look either with your laryngoscope or your glide scope, and the tube goes right in, and then you're done. Um, but what if they aspirate? What if, what if they puke, and then that you're convinced that they aspirate? Do these patients need stat antibiotics? The answer is no to that. Um, mostly this is a chemical pneumonitis, and if they get pneumonia, it's usually down the road. And what happens once you get these patients intubated? They have an automatic blood pressure cuff on their arm that doesn't go off for 10 more minutes. Everyone leaves the room, and they're happy because it says 140 over 80 on the monitor. And the patient's got a pressure of 60, seen a thousand times. So before you leave the room, either check the blood pressure yourself okay. because it's going to be lower. It's going to be lower every single time. So be, be prepared to um, give them more fluid. We've, we all know about push-dose pressors, and this would be a great case to even, even consider starting the patient on Levifed before the intubation or failing that, have some push-dose happy at the bedside. So I think those are some of the issues to, to think about. Uh, around intubating these critical ill patients. Just sort of have a plan in your head and um, uh, just have a plan in your head and it, it'll be a much more effective. All right, thanks a lot, Dr. Shabala. Thank you for the high yield points. Um, I think we all definitely learned from that and we'll definitely keep that in mind. Hopefully uh, we won't have any problems <laughs> or when uh, this type of critical ill patient comes to our ER, we'll know what to do next time. So thank you for your time. Thank you.